Welcome to Northern Goal, the football podcast from the Evening Express and Press and Journal. I'm Ryan Kryle and today I'm joined by Andy Skinner, but this isn't a regular episode, we've already done one of them this week, this is one of our special guest episodes and what a guest we've got for you, 70 goals in 180 games for Aberdeen, won three Scottish Cups, his first three seasons in the first team, won the Premier Division twice, won a League Cup, won the European Cup, Winners' Cup, most famously of all, as well as European Super Cup, it is Eric Black, how are you Eric? I'm very well, thank you gentlemen. Very well indeed, thank you. It is our pleasure to have you here. Um, you've agreed kindly to let us kind of chat with you through your, your early life, your career and later on. Um, I suppose, first of all, got to ask you, what's the last year been like for you? Where have you been in the world? Um, but how <laughs> have you been coping far, with things? <laughs> um, well, fine actually. I mean, I, I must admit I had COVID uh, in March which I wouldn't recommend. Um, it kind of knocked me out for 10 days. I, I can't remember eight of the days, but um, once I came through that, I've been fine. Um, obviously locked up like everybody else and a bit restricted, but uh, on the whole, we just have to get on with it. Have you have you experienced any of the, the lasting symptoms that a lot of people talk about, or have you was it the 10 days and then no. you, were, you were clear? Yeah, it was. I was kind of out of it for 10 days. Um, it was right at the start, around about March, um, which, as I said, uh, I wouldn't recommend. But it was after that, um, within 10, 15 days, I started picking up. And since then, touch wood, uh, I haven't felt any sort of side effects at all. Where are you based at the moment? Hey, I'm based in Leamington Spa. I've been down here for the last 18, 19 years in the Midlands, uh, just south of well, just south of Coventry. Obviously, the um, the t- technology we have nowadays allows us to kind of keep in touch virtually, like we're kind of doing right now, I suppose. But right at the start of the, the lockdown, there was obviously a bit of a Aberdeen Golden Generation reunion. Were you involved in that? The Zoom, yeah, I was involved in that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was wonderful, actually, to hear so many stories, which I must admit, I'd forgotten half of them. Um, and obviously, uh, Sir Alex joined, which was a bit of a surprise. Um, but no, it was wonderful. It's, it's great to reminisce with the lads that were involved at that time. And obviously to, to hear some of the stories and refresh your memory of some of the stories and certainly the characters that were involved. Are you still in touch um, relatively frequently with your teammates from Aberdeen? Um, I wouldn't. We have a WhatsApp group, so we're we're always uh, in touch with regard to that, you know, with bits and pieces. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to get together because it's always like uh, you, you've, you've been with them two, three weeks prior to that. It's so easy to fall mm-hmm. back into the stories and the characters that are there. Um, so I very much look forward to hopefully uh, in 2021. It might be a bit too early, but it would be lovely to, to even get a game of golf organised or something that we could get together. It's always wonderful to see them. Eric, there's obviously been a few reunions over the years, but you know when when you're you know part of a, a group of uh, players that have achieved so much, you know, is it really important to kind of keep that that bond going through the years? Well, I don't think you have to work very hard at keeping it, to be honest. I think uh, having experienced what I experienced at Aberdeen and with a group of players, and I feel extremely fortunate to have been involved with a, with such an exceptional group of players, not only in terms of their ability to play football, but their character um, and the demands they put on each other, their competitive nature. It was, just, it was fantastic. So it's, it's very easy to keep in touch. As I say, um, obviously geography now dictates that we don't see each other that often but when we do it's like uh, as I said it's like the day before um, and very quickly we fall back into listening to the to the stories and just enjoying each other's company. 
that would be the dream I imagine for a lot of Don's fans to be to just get one day in that WhatsApp group we all and just to see just to see what goes on in there um, yeah you don't want to be involved in that I can assure you <laughs> going going right back to the start then Eric what was what yep. was life like growing up for you I mean obviously I, I believe you were actually you were born in the central belt but you ended up moving yep up to the Highlands, which is obviously rele- relevant for us. Um, how did you end sure. up playing football, I suppose, and how did you end up at Aberdeen? Well, I mean, I was a young, as, as, as you say, I brought up to about the age of 11, 12 at, uh, in Glasgow, just outside Glasgow. Um, and my father, I played football, obviously, from a very young age. It was the only thing that I was ever interested in. Um, my father had played professionally prior to that, so I must have had one or two of the genes, um, and some of my uncles had played. So it was, um, it was nice to... Uh, um, be given one or two genes, but that football was all I was interested in. Um, we then moved to the Highlands due to work commitments from my father. He moved up uh, to work at Nig, um, up in Easter Ross. Um, I then went to school there. I played for the school team, and there was a school teacher, Ian McKenzie, who was very influential in terms of working with young players at the school and certainly trying to promote myself. Um, and I think he contacted Aberdeen to, to say that I might be worth a look. Uh, we then played, I think, Aberdeenshire. Uh, I was playing for North of Scotland at the time. And Bobby Clark was there and Lenny Taylor. And they invited me down thereafter to, to a training camp. Uh, I think Bobby Calder also was involved, who was a, a very old, now you young lads will remember him, but he was very mm-hmm. influential at the time in terms of scouting. Um, and from then I kind of travelled with Brian Gunn at the time, who was next to me in Invergordon um, for tri- uh, trials and bits and pieces and uh, uh, holidays and breaks and school breaks and things. And ultimately uh, was offered a professional contract at the well, I was offered a schoolboy contract, I think, at 14 or 15, and then signed professionally at 16. What were your experiences of, of playing football in, in the Highlands? Because obviously, as you touched on there, you know, you would have been, um, you know, well into it by the, the time you, you moved up from Glasgow. But, uh, you know, when you when you did make the move to, to all this, um, you know, what what was the uh, the sort of the, the footballing vibe like there at the time? Um, I mean, it was obviously not, I don't think there was as many teams, obviously, organised as it was in Glasgow um, at the time, but there were still some good players because a lot of the central belt players certainly had moved up with families, um, but there was a lot of good players up in the Highlands at that time. You know, I remember guys from BAM, James Alexander, Gordon, um, Gordon Robertson. Um, Neil Fivey's father, uh, who also played at that time. So there was a lot of good players playing in the Highland League. Nicky Walker played in goals at that point and was a um, a competitor to Big Brian Gunn's position. So the, there was a lot of decent players um, and it was well organised. There were some good coaches. Um, obviously, the geographical thing in terms of travelling for games was difficult, but that, that just became part of it. Um, and again, I was very fortunate with a lot of volunteer people in that area who were really keen on football and were keen to promote football in the area. Eric, trademark is the, the header where you hang in the air. Did you always did you always have a gift for that or is it something you learn? How how if it is something you learn, how is that how do you work on something like that? Because obviously in recent years it's become it's become famous as something that Cristiano Ronaldo does or whatever. But you you've been doing it or you were doing it back in the back in the probably the seventies, <laughs> the eighties. I don't know if it was as well as him, but um the no, I mean I remember 
obviously very young. I was I worked a lot heading, just heading it against the wall because my father was a striker as well, and I, I used to just head the ball against the wall and try and control it and things. But it was only around the age of fourteen, fifteen that I realised I could jump a bit higher than most, or at least whether I was jumping higher or not. But certainly my timing of the ball um, was probably slightly better than most, and. I, I then realised, and I was playing in midfield at the time, but anything the goalkeeper kicked out, I always won. I was always knocking it first and obviously putting pressure back on the opposing team. Um, I don't know, I played a bit of basketball between the age of 12 and 15, 16. Did that help? I don't know. Um, but I think it was. It just seemed to be something that I, I naturally adopted. Uh, I knew very quickly that I, I could time things and be up there a little bit earlier uh, to make contact with the ball. Um and it just went from there. Obviously, I continued not necessarily to practice it, but within a game situation, you you tend to, to develop these skills. Just watch the the Aberdeen based basketball club's uh, website crash <laughs> once this is released. Um, okay, so you broke into the first team. It was 1981-82. It was sort of the period where it was a transition from the first uh, Alex Ferguson league winning side um, from what, 79-80, and then. What what are your early memories, I suppose, first of all, of, of Fergie? Because obviously you would have been, when you were first at the club, you were a youth player, as you said, but when what was it like when you first met him? What, what were your early early recollections of him? I mean, at that time, and obviously as going down in history in terms of how he was as a manager, um, he knew all the youth team players. I mean, he, him and Archie used to come and watch the sessions. So at that point, it was a kind of probably a diluted form Obviously, we were still youth players, um, but I had familiarised myself with the with the area to a certain degree, with the training ground, with a lot of the players from Aberdeen who were on S form. So that introduction helped before I actually moved in as um, a professional, young professional player at the age of 16. Um, but very quickly, um, I realised the competitive nature of being a professional football player. Uh, I mean, I always knew there would be a competitive edge, but um, it became hyper. It was a very, very competitive atmosphere. Um, and that, was, that wasn't by chance. That was driven by the manager, by Archie Knox, Terry Scott, all the people that surrounded the club at that point. It was a, a very competitive atmosphere and uh, an unrelenting atmosphere, very competitive in training. Um, the demands that were put upon you very quickly. And again, at 16, it takes time to adopt uh, the way that people work um, and adapt to the way that people work. So um, it's, it was constantly a challenge at the age of 16, but it was something I thrived on. I had nothing to compare it with. Obviously, I'd never been a professional footballer anywhere else. Um, so I had nothing to compare it with. Uh, but looking back now, I realise, well, just how competitive it was, but just how fortunate probably I was to be involved with a group of players and management team like that. In terms of the dynamics of, you know, that team, I mean, obviously you were one of a few young guys that were coming through at the time, you know, with the, the likes of Neil Cooper, John Hewitt, and obviously Brian Gunn, who you came down from the Highlands with as well. Uh, and then there were obviously some of the, the older ones, like Willie Miller, Alex McLeish, um, but, you know, did you find yourself that you know quite close with the the guys of a, a similar age uh, as you were sort of coming through into the first team? Yeah, well, obviously, I had worked uh, as a youth player and as a schoolboy form. Um, I played with Brian. I played a couple of times with John um, Hewitt, Neil Cooper, uh, Neil Simpson was uh, slightly older as well, but was involved in some of the sessions. Um, so 
we kind of, I think there were six young players signed at that point um, on S forms. So we we were a group together, experienced this for the first time in our lives, you know, and uh, just what it entailed to be a professional football player. Um, but I knew quite a few of the boys round about it. Um, and yeah, we did. Obviously, we spent more time together than uh, obviously Willie and Gordon and Mark McGee and uh, John McMaster, Stuart Kennedy, these kind of players, Jim Layton, Doug Rugby. Um, but Alec McLeish was kind of in between. Alec was one that certainly bridged the gap and allowed us, you know, to feel a little bit more part of it. Um, he definitely assisted, certainly helped me, and I'm sure of quite a few of the lads, um, just to bridge that gap and to be a, a sounding block, if you like, for difficult times, which of course there were difficult times and trying to get through and adapt, as I said, to, to being a professional player. The team obviously didn't win the league in 1981-82, but they were up there competing. And you as a young guy come to the team, you score your first goal, I think, first league goal maybe against Dundee United in a 1-1 draw. You scored, I think, against Rangers in a 3-1 win in that first season. Um, how how do you kind of cope with the, the pressure of that? Because obviously it's not these games aren't dead rubbers. You're coming on and you're having to like you're having to contribute to what is a highly competitive um side that's going for silverware straight away how is it easier maybe in a way being so young and you experienced um, to do that possibly yeah possibly you're just i was just desperate to be a football player um and i just wanted to please the manager um be recognized by my teammates that had contributed and I just wanted to work hard and try and improve to be a football player. Yeah, I scored. I was fortunate enough to score against Dundee United in my debut, uh, which again gives you that massive confidence boost. I mean, whether I realised that at the time, but it makes you feel part of it. And it probably made the players who I was playing against, uh, with, sorry, realise that maybe I could contribute. Um, so it does. It's a big step. Uh, making your debut is a big step. But it's only the start again and you're, you're, the pressure mounts because you're having to perform at a very high level every week. Um, so, And then obviously opposing players start to get to know you. Um, but I think initially when you go in, there's that naivety that you just want to be on the pitch and you're probably running around and not thinking too much. It took me quite a while to realise just what I had to do um, over a period of a career. And I think that and certainly as a striker, you develop um, certain things. But... To begin with, I, I just wanted to play. I just wanted to contribute. I wanted to lay the ball off. I wanted to get in the box. I wanted to try and score. And it was very basic and, as I said, naive at the time. In your early life, as you've talked about, you've worked hard to become a footballer. But people talk about in football how you also need to have the rub of the green. How important was it to you scoring your debut, you're involved in a team that's going for the league title, you then come on, come on in your first season as a sub at Hamden in a successful Scottish Cup final. Um, you know, like all these things seem to fall into place and were these things that then shaped what you sort of believed almost was possible for the rest of your career? Um, yeah, I think at Aberdeen there was certainly something starting to bubble up, you know, and uh, led by uh, Sir Alex and Archie, Terry Scott, as I mentioned, um, that atmosphere and that competitive atmosphere and that, the belief, and I'm, I'm sure a thousand, well, lots of the players that played at that time would say it, uh, we were trying to really confirm that belief for ourselves that we could go and win in Glasgow and that we could win the league. Um, and it, it's all right saying it now because ultimately we achieved it. But prior to that happening, it, it takes a lot of belief um, and a lot of persuading to get 
15 players or so to really believe every weekend they're going out there that the ultimate could be that they win the league and they're the best team in Scotland. Um, and that's not easy. Um, but uh, as I've said to many people, Sir Alec Ferguson didn't work for five or six days a week. Uh, he's the only one I've ever seen that worked for seven non-stop every day. Um, and he knew every day he put that pressure on and he had an insatiable appetite for success and hunger for success, which transmits whether you like it or not. It's the atmosphere you work in day to day. And so you're there led by it. So I was very lucky um, to be part of that. I like to think that over time I, I contributed to my teammates, but I just loved playing football. I loved being part of a team sport. Um, I love the characters that I played with. And yeah, looking back, um, maybe there are defining moments. I, don't, I think that's the same in every career. But I was very, very fortunate. When I look at the, the players that I played with and the characters and the, the determination they had to succeed um, and the management team, uh, I certainly had uh, a good teachers, that's for sure. Okay. You sort of, you, you touched there on um, contributions and things like that. Um Let's stick domestically to start with the 1982-83 season. Obviously, in your second season, you also win the Scottish Cup. Spoiler alert for later on, you also win it in your third season. But in that second season, that's kind of the season where you've come on your own. You're a fully-fledged first-team star. You're starting more games than you're not. Um, you, I think your cross set up, Peter Weir, is winning in the semi against Celtic. Yeah, we right? Celtic. Yeah, Hamden. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I do and remember then it from the corner. Yeah. The final was a tight one. Nil nil goes to extra time. Your header scored. You scored the winning header. Um, what what I like about that goal is the fact that the cross actually takes a massive deflection the way over, and it loops right up in the air, which must have given you quite a lot of time to think. I suppose before that ball dropped on your head. What what's going through your head in that moment? Thinking, here I am at nineteen. I suppose you were at that point. I can I can head this in and basically win the Scottish Cup. Um, well, I guarantee you, all that didn't go through my head, that's for sure. Um, the the only thing I was focusing on, I just remember laying the ball out to Mark McGee. Um, I think it was Mark. And he was a, I thought he was going to try and shoot. And I thought if he shot a trot, whatever, to try and cross it. But as you see, the ball took a deflection. And I just made my way into an area where I, I thought if it comes off the goalkeeper, I can be round about it. If he mishits it, I can be round about it. So just at really trying to help my percentages have been near the ball if it came out and it spun up into the air and as you rightly said normally a cross coming in you're you're looking at the goal you're looking at the defender you're judging the ball the time of the ball the flight whatever it's coming in um but it gave me that little half second more and I, what it did it allowed me to kind of set myself a little bit but then there was it took the power out of the ball so at that point you're going to have to make real contact with it to try and direct it so it's one of those nervous ones that look easy, but they're actually worse because there's no power in the ball and the ball's starting to spin. So eventually, thankfully, I made relatively decent contact and the goalkeeper was a little bit isolated because he'd moved across, I think, to, to cut off his front post and it, it opened up the other half of the goal. Um, and thankfully, it went in. What's that like at 19? I know I know he's had done something pretty major uh, a week or so before, but how... how what? What's that feel like being being the guy after a cup final? Because obviously the Scottish Cup final is still huge, but back then, massive. Every, the cup, everyone domestically wants to win, I suppose. But how, what's, what's it like after the game being the guy that scored the winner? Well, 
I think that it's been well noted in history that after the game it was it was slightly different and uh, different in the dressing yeah. room. I, I remember just after the goal being um, relieved. I must admit, relieved that we'd broken the deadlock and we knew that we were in extra time. There wasn't an awful lot of time left to go and that probably that was going to be the winning goal. But I was absolutely knackered. I must admit, I was shattered. Um, I think a lot of the players were that day and I think obviously that um, reflected in our performance on the day. Um, but I remember going into the dressing room and although we were knackered then, it, it was celebration time at that. Um, obviously, we were opening bottles of champagne and everybody was hugging each other and jumping around as usual. And then the door came flying open. Um, and, <laughs> and of course, unbeknown to us, the manager had already had given an interview on the pitch. Um, but we were inside, so we knew nothing of it. And the door nearly came off the hinges as it came in. Um, and then he decided to give us a, some information about the previous 90 minutes or 120 minutes. Um, and I, obviously at that point, the, the celebrations are halted slightly. But, I mean, it's the, it's the infamous um, interview that he gave after and then came into the dressing room. And it certainly dulled it, that's for sure. But I think we were, one, so relieved that we'd won the Cup uh, and having just won the European Cup Winners' Cup. Um, that we were so shattered and knackered, but it was uh, it'll go down in, in folklore, I suppose, in Aberdeen. I suppose that would have been you signing off for the season, you know, after the, the Scottish Cup final. But uh, I mean, did you get the chance to, to speak to Sir Alex again, you know, kind of in the, the days after that? Um, you know, did, <laughs> or was that just how he left it for the summer? <laughs> no, no, it was, um, I think he realized, or I think Archie kind of said to him that maybe you've gone a little bit too far on this one. Um, and I remember going up to Glen Eagles. We were all, obviously, the, after the final, we went to Glen Eagles to, to celebrate. And that, a few of the wives were down. Some of us had girlfriends at the time weren't there. But a few of the wives were there. We had a big meal, which was meant to be a celebration meal, watching the game on a big screen. And it was like a wake. Um, but I think he, uh, Sir Alex apologised um, after that, um, that, or to a certain degree, uh, that he uh, maybe had gone overboard a little bit. Um, and then we went back to Pataudry, where else and uh, the season was over um, and we went our separate ways. Before we before we jump to what had happened, as we've hinted at about a week before, um, <laughs> obviously in the 1984 final, I think you scored as well. Uh, it was a, another another one that went to extra time. You, your kind of spinning volley, almost, uh, I think, was the opening goal what, for 1-0. Um, yeah, it was the opening goal, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously players now can't, especially players that play it for Aberdeen, who, you know, it's kind of a struggle to win cups against the, the Glasgow two a little bit. But what's it like at, at that such a young age, 20 years old, having won the Scottish Cup three times? Um, do, you, do you think modern players now will ever, like, ever experience that for a team like Aberdeen? No, I think it's going to be extremely hard to replicate that. Um I mean, it was special times, there's no doubt about it. And as I say, I feel very fortunate to have been part of it. Um, to score again in the cup final, again, it's a boyhood dream. You you dream of these things growing up. You replicate these things in your back garden, scoring the winning goal or scoring the opening goal and the, the euphoria and the feeling of, uh, that surrounds it. Um, but I must admit, I, I had got into such a, a routine at that point with Aberdeen and we were so... Um, I mean, I remember, and I think I said it to Willie Miller not that long ago, it was, 
I used to come in, do pre-season training, get shouted at for about eight, nine months, um, win two or three trophies, and then go on holiday again. And it just kept going round and round, you know. <laughs> we just seemed to win uh, trophy after trophy um, during that five or six-year period, um, which when you're going through it and when you've, the pressure's on you, you want to keep doing it. You want to keep replicating. You want to keep winning trophies. The pressure's on you to keep performing and training every day. You know, it's, you don't just turn up for the final um, and win the game. You know, there's a lot of uh, games leading up to that. There's a lot of training sessions. The league, there's a lot of uh, training sessions and effort put into that. So you don't just turn up on the day and take the trophy. So, but we were such a we were in such a zone and such a competitive bunch of people and such a competitive management team that. We just kept going. It just kept going and going and going. And um, as I say, I feel very fortunate to have been part of such a successful era. I think you've said to me previously it was a trophy every 19 games. Is that, is that right? Yeah, somebody came up with that kind of stat, that, um, which is quite ridiculous, really. But um, yeah, I think I, I picked up a trophy every 19 games um, for Aberdeen. So um, uh, you can see what the Dons of today would that. give. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's talk about it. Let's stick with the cups then. Obviously, the European Cup winners' cup. First of all, the quarter final, um, Todd's most famous night, win over Bayern Munich. Um, I think um, it was actually your effort, your header that was saved before John Hewitt scored the winner. What was that? Is that moment yeah. kind of crystallised in your mind? Um. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have one or two memories, um, key memories, and that that certainly was one of them. Um, I've never experienced an atmosphere in, in a football ground like that, and I know it wasn't eighty five thousand, but it sounded like it and it felt like it. Um, and I, I do remember the header. I think it was just after the restart, John McMaster's played it in, um, and the goalkeeper was over. And I, th- I thought I'd put enough on it to, that it was he wasn't going to get it, but then I realised he was getting it, and I thought well, he's. He's going to touch it onto the bar. He's going to put it over. Um, and I, for whatever reason, he, he tries to palm it down in front of him. And thankfully, Johnny was at his brilliant best and arrived and um, put it through the goalkeeper's legs. And uh, it was at that moment, uh, really, the, the place erupted. Um, and I'm sure teams that uh, supporters that follow Boca Juniors and whoever, Real Madrid and Barcelona will have experienced it with 90,000 or 100,000. But... Uh, the atmosphere in the stadium was unbelievable. It was fantastic. And it was that euphoria it equates in a certain degree to to winning the cup finals. It was such an atmosphere um, and such a turnaround in a 14, 15 minute period. Um, and those are the things that make sports special. It should be said that there are so many highlights that from that 1982-83 season, we've just ignored the fact that you scored a hat-trick at Parkhead, um, scored a winner at Ibrox. I think you're the last visiting player to score a hat-trick at Parkhead, I believe, still. Um, um, but Yeah, somebody, yeah, somebody sorry to interrupt, but somebody, I was actually, I remember, um, actually Messi had scored two, one, yeah, and I remember I was working at Southampton at the time, we were playing into Milan, the Europa Cup in Milan, and I was watching the Celtic-Barcelona game, and I got a text and it said, um, question, who was the last person to score a hat-trick at, C- at Celtic Park? And, of course, Messi scored two at this point, and I'm thinking, I've no idea. I've no idea. And I'm, I, I look, and it's Archie. And I said, no idea, Archie. Why are you asking me? 
He said, it was you, your balloon. So he's texted me back. <laughs> so it was only then that I realised that it had gone on, but I think it was actually, I think someone, some check, because I got quite a few calls on it. Um, one of the Czech players that scored three, a hat-trick recently. Obviously, there was nobody in the stadium, but uh, to equal it. So, yeah, it's still a, it was still a, a nice record to hold, as long as it did. Doesn't count with no fans. The atmosphere is nowhere near as <laughs> intimidating. No. So, obviously, we said we forgot about that. We've discussed it now, but after the Bayern Munich win, back to Europe, after the Bayern Munich win, you go on, I think you scored against Watershy, which was a, a pretty um, comfortable semi-final performance. Um, then the final. So how much do you remember, we discussed this with Alex McLeish, how much do you remember about the trip to Gothenburg, the day and the build-up to the game, the game itself and the aftermath? Is it all, is it all like it was yesterday, I suppose? Um, yeah, there's bits. There's, there's obviously, I remember obviously arriving at the airport to go out um, and it was different, without doubt. We'd never really experienced anything like that. I mean, teams probably experience it all the time now, but arriving at the airport, there were so many supporters at the airport going through there on the plane. Obviously, there was a lot of media stuff to be done. Um, and we arrived in um, in Sweden. And at that time, it was all building up. But again, and I don't know if Alex alluded to it, that Alex Ferguson had tried to take the pressure off a little bit and had spoken very little about Real Madrid. We had the dossier that Archie had prepared um, in terms of the, the individuals we were going to play against and the team that they might play. But at that point, he kind of switched off and took the heat out. He obviously realised that the media round about it and the families and everything else was starting to so increase the, probably the pressure. And there was going to be ultimate pressure on us anyway when we walked out. But um, I think he realised that and started really never spoke too much about them. Um, when we arrived there, and it was only obviously the night before, it, which again was slightly different, and that he read out the team and said who the starting eleven, which he normally kept the day of the match. So again, that was a, a little turn away from the norm. Um, but I mean, it was a very modest tell. We, we all played various quizzes and bits and pieces to kind of relax the night before the game, and then all of a sudden the day of the game arrives, and it's. Um, well, at one point, I suppose we thought, is this going to go ahead? Because it just never stopped the whole morning um, we were there. But thankfully it did, um, and the rest is history. Obviously, walking out onto the pitch, um, I mean, there were significantly more Aberdeen fans than, than Real Madrid there. But, uh, you know, was that something you were you know prepared for? Uh, and, you know, did it give you a, a massive lift when you, you walked out onto the, the pitch and, and saw just how oh, without much doubt. red and white it was? Yeah. Well, we knew that there was oh, they were traveling on boats and planes and whatever else they could um, get their hands on. So we knew that we were going to be well supported. Um, going out is always special. Going out at any game, um, a, a professional football game, is always special when you line up um, next to the opposition as the referee comes through. And I think that's it's the first part of the competition, if you like. And we had certainly one or two warriors in there, you know, who were relatively intimidating certainly if you you probably hadn't played in the Scottish League at that time with Big Doogie and Alec and Neil Simpson Neil Cooper who were quite vociferous in terms of their preparation and their in the tunnel ready to go so I think we already they had probably looked across and thought oh my word what are we going up for here and it, it probably the weather wasn't great either but um, it, I, re, I do remember that part um, 
and then obviously just walking out onto the pitch and to the Aberdeen support, which again, as you said, was far superior to theirs. When you balance scoring the opening goal against the horrendous conditions, so much water on the pitch, um, and the fact that Real Madrid, there was a mistake in, from, from Big Alex and Jim Layton, and that led to Real Madrid restoring uh, parity at 1-1. Is, was there a tension in the game that means that you would never want to relive it again, or would you want to play it every day for the rest of your life if you could? <laughs> um. I mean, it was another day, game of football. It was a it was a very special game of football, and all the bits that surround it. But football players, yeah, the atmosphere is slightly different. But you you have to, at one point, you have to focus on the game, and you have to be more in the game than taking in the atmosphere. Um, and I always used to try and focus on my first touch before a, you know, the first ball that I was played up to me. And predominantly, that would come up to my feet. I'd be have a defender at my back. I would try and control it and lay it off and whatever. So. I remember trying to focus on that and trying to get myself into the game um, and focus in the game. And the game swing from one to the other, obviously. Uh, we score, and then we concede. Um, but we're in the game at that point, and we're, without doubt, we're very competitive and probably the more dominant team at that point. So, yeah, it's a setback. But, you, but football players very quickly learn to deal with setbacks because um, if you didn't uh, lose a goal in the first minute then and decide that that's it and you can forget it so you become pretty resilient in terms of you've got to keep going you know, there's always it only takes a small amount of time to get yourself back in it and psychologically it can swing very quickly so uh, there was never at any point that I felt that we wouldn't I'm not saying that we would win the game. I, I never felt 100% we'd win the game, but I knew we were very competitive and I knew that on the night we were as good as they were. Um, and th those facts in your head drive you forward in terms of, yeah, I think we can keep going here. We can win this. We can win this. So, um, and ultimately, we did. We discussed a little bit there the fact that you scored the opening goal. It reminds me a little bit of the goal that you'd later score in the 1984 Scottish Cup final in the sense that ball breaks to you, you're quite near to that right-hand post. You're almost going away from goal a little bit. You've kind of got to spin and hit it with no real, I suppose you almost got your back to the keeper. And in those situations, is it just a case of spinning, keeping it low, making sure you get a good connection and hoping that it finds the back of the net? Yeah, I mean, again, it's the same one in the Cup final. It was... Um... I knew Alec was going to try and hit it and I just wanted to be around. I, I didn't want to be offside and I, I just wanted to be around the goalkeeper um, in case he parried it out or it hit the post or or I could even get in front of his line, his eye line, so that you know he wouldn't have a clear look at the ball and I could let it go or I could let it pass me or whatever. Um, and it was the same, I think, just as a striker, you're constantly, I was just constantly and trying to anticipate where the ball would go. I always wanted to try and get as close to the goalkeeper um, as I could because I knew that the guy that was heading it would be he would be getting closer to the ball if you know what I mean unless it went in the net which would have been fine but if he was going to get it it was going to come off him so and it's just reaction at that point you just have to hope that you react slightly quicker than the defender or the goalkeeper and then in terms of it going in it's as you rightly said, it was you're trying to get your body in a position to make contact or a decent contact, um, and whatever form that takes. Um, 
is what you try to achieve. You're just trying really hard to get contact on the ball and direct it towards the goal, um, any part of it. Um, and, and that's how it is. It's really in, it's an instinctive thing, without doubt. You just uh, these are never replicated. They can, they can look similar, but the the situations are never replicated. And again, I, I think the one at Celtic, Celtic complained that uh, nearly took Paki Bonner's head off. But I, I didn't see. I saw Paki Bonner, but at the point I, I was only looking at the ball. I was only looking to make contact with the ball. Whether my foot after hitting the ball came through, I don't know. But I was uh, I was purely thinking on the ball. What time? How long does it take to come down from? The moment where John Hewitt scores the winner, how many days afterwards were you back on a sort of back on a level? Well, I it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's oh god, that just went on and I mean, it, every turn there just seemed to be something exceptional, you know, whether it was come back and on the plane, the the attitude of the players thereafter, the getting it to Union Street is was just incredible. I mean, from Holborn Street to Union Street was something now, even looking at the, the pictures and photographs that were taken and some of the video footage just you know hairs on the back of your neck stuff it was it was incredible absolutely incredible what was achieved and to and again to be part of it was so so special um and again uh, thankfully it probably uh, we went into up at Pitorgy, but i think it just goes on and then it, it dilutes and then before you know it you're you're back in the pre-season and it's all forgotten. It's very quickly forgotten in professional sport because there's always somebody coming up who is possibly better or who wants to achieve it and whatever else. So you're, you're constantly put under pressure to, to go and perform again. Um, and we did. I'm conscious we've been at this for like 40 minutes now. So we, we must move on. So we can't forget the two league titles. You won with the Dons, 1983-84-85, back-to-back. I think you struggled for fitness a little bit in 83, 84. That'd be correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was where I think ultimately my, my back injury started and I was out for a couple of weeks. I was in traction. Um, um, so, yeah, and it then with my back injury, it then led to, you know, kind of instability. And again, I, I don't label him in anybody's doorstep. I was uh, the the knowledge in terms of scans and various things were not around at that point. But um, it then I started to have problems um, with my stomach as well in terms of my pelvis. Um, and then I was turning my ankle a little bit more than I should have done. But it was all coming from my back. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a difficult season, that's for sure. That being said, though, the following season, 84-85, which was a supreme defence of the title, but that was that was your your best goal scoring season for Aberdeen. Twenty goals, thirty five games, all competitions. That included obviously four two win over Celtic, the famous five one win over Rangers where Frank McDougall scored the hat trick, your own hat trick five yeah. 0 win over Hibs. Um, just how it was. Obviously, that was a a slightly different team. That was kind of the third Fergie team, I suppose. Yeah, at Aberdeen. But how how good was that team compared to the the team that won in Gothenburg? It's really hard to compare because, as you say, I would think there would probably still be 80-odd percent or eight, seven, eight percent maybe of that team. I can't remember exactly. I know Mark McGee left and Gordon was obviously... Was, did Mark leave at that point when Frank came in? I think uh, Mark Mark McGee was gone, yeah. Uh, Gordon yeah, Strachan. So, 
there was probably still 80%, 85% of the team or whatever. So it, was, it wasn't a huge transition, but it was a big transition um, because there were top quality players that had left. Um, but it wasn't easy for the players coming in, but my goodness, they adapted pretty quickly. And I mean, Frank McDougall was an exceptional striker, exceptional finisher, um, as his goal scoring record will, will suggest. And as you alluded to, the goals that he scored and hat tricks against Celtic, I think he scored, did he score? And two, I think in, within a week, I think he scored three against Rangers and three against, or two against Celtic. I think or three the other way around. I'm not too sure. I think, but I think within a week, he scored both, didn't he? Yeah, I think it was. I, the, I think he scored two in the four-two win over Celtic. That's right. Oh no, it was so, you that scored two in the four-two win over Celtic. Actually, so. Oh, was it? Um, I can't remember. But I thought within a week he'd scored like four goals or five goals against the old firm. Um, but I could be wrong. Um, so anyway, he had, he was an exceptional footballer, uh, finisher rather. Um, he wasn't the prettiest on the eye, but he had a great instinct round about the goal and a composure and so many different finishes. Um, so. It's hard to compare that, um, but I mean, I think they were, as you rightly said, uh, to win the Scottish League at that time is an exceptional achievement. Eric, when you look back on that period and you know the the dominance that you know Aberdeen enjoyed, and obviously Dundee United uh, were kind of challenging as well. Um, I mean, just just what was it like, you know, when you know I suppose two provincial clubs were were sort of ruling the roost at the at the time? Was it uh, was it quite? You know, a strange thing to to sort of look back on now. You know, with the way things have, have changed so much. To yeah, um, yeah, without doubt. I mean, uh, again, it made it even more competitive because you had the old firm, um, who Celtic were still very competitive. Rangers had a period where they struggled a little bit, um, but the emergence of the United, who were a top team, and I mean, the battles, literally the battles that we had against the United at Petodre and at Tannadice. Uh, were exceptional matches and really fine lines in terms of the outcomes. Um, so, without doubt, that it probably made it harder because there was three or four teams that were were pretty dominant at that point, rather than maybe as we see it, you know, one or two now that are really up there, um, and the others are obviously trying to progress and work twice as hard to try and to bridge the gap. Um, but it, without doubt, it was an exceptionally good standard of player. I mean, Dundee United obviously showed that which, uh, when they went on to the European Cup winners fi- semi-final. Um, so it wasn't, you know, just a domestic thing. They were top, top teams uh, and top players who could compete with any teams in Europe. Um, and that was the standard of the Scottish League at that time. In 85-86, obviously the league didn't go as well, but the club still won the double. Um, League Cup finally, which had been the one that eluded Fergie for so long, as well as the the Scottish Cup. I think you scored in the quarters and semis of both, as well as the final of the League Cup. Um, it's well documented that you were left out for the Scottish Cup final. Um, what do you what do you remember about your departure from the Dons and how it how it unfolded? You better put about another hour on the tape. That would probably <laughs> cover it. No, um, no. In all seriousness, it was. Uh, Gone on a little bit. I mean, I had made a decision at that point to leave. Um, and uh, uh, there had been offers from down south, but obviously it was still wasn't freedom of contract at that point. Um, and the only way that I could actively leave was to go abroad um, without, obviously, the, the club uh, having a say in it. So I decided at that point to 
to go. And it had been going on for quite a long time. It had been on for seven or eight months. I'd been in communication with bits and pieces. And I was sure that, you know, I didn't want it to affect my my performance. And I don't think it did. I don't think it took me away from it. Um, but it had been bubbling up. And then ultimately, about the week before, it had come to light. Um, and I had said that I was intending to leave. And at that point, the manager decided not to play me, which... Uh, you can look. I was disappointed, obviously, um, slightly more than disappointed at the time. But that's that was part of it, you know. Uh, he made a decision based on what he thought was right for the team, um, and I, I had to obviously deal with the consequences of me deciding that I wanted to move. So, hey, that was that's what it is. As we've previously touched on, the manager is quite famous for having a bit of a temper. Um, in these situations, I think the, the public view is always that behind the scenes there's screaming and shouting going on was that was was there genuinely that kind of friction or was it quite quietly handled as a, a case of you know you won't be playing but quite um reasonably um done or was it was it genuinely uh, <laughs> no we'll go with the latter i think we'll go with the latter definitely <laughs> we'll go with the latter okay. that's for sure yeah but that's um but that that was the atmosphere at the time and that was um the manager was desperate to do his best for uh, Aberdeen Football Club, as as I was, but I was even more desperate to do well for Eric Black. So I had made a decision at that point, and I'd signed a contract, a four-year contract prior to that, which was okay. But I thought was, but I'd signed it, and if you sign a contract, then that's it, you got on. And I was very fortunate, as I said, to be part of that. But um, I'd made a, a decision in my head that. Uh, I was leaving, um, not because of Aberdeen or whatever, or the team or the players. It was it was purely a financial reason at that point, um, or motivator at that point. Um, and when that crosses, then so it is. So it's it's history now, but um, certainly it was the latter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're talking we're talking about a career to that point that probably wouldn't happen nowadays. I suppose eight. Major honours by the age of what 23, 70 goals, senior goals at the age of 23. As you touched upon before the Bosman ruling, you you probably would have got a, a move down south to England, I imagine, probably for one of the, the biggest clubs down there. But you end up going to to France, Mets. How did that come about? How different a change was it in terms of lifestyle, football? Oh, Obviously spent huge. five years there, so it couldn't have been a flash in the pan for you. No, no, it was, um, I mean, as you rightly said, I had, uh, Tottenham were interested at the time, I think it was Everton, but there was various clubs interested, but uh, yeah, the club had to agree a fee prior to that and agreed to sell the player. So the only way I could go out was a, there was a calculation that was based on, I think, appearances, age, I don't know what other, there was one or two different things that were involved in the, the calculation to a fee that came up to about three three hundred and ninety four hundred thousand, um, and at that point I could move I could move abroad um, and I had my wife is uh, mother's German so I'd looked at the Bundesliga and I had one or two contacts there at the Bundesliga that looked very promising and ultimately I was that's where I was going to go, um, but then I got a call from um, Wenger. Um, who was at Nancy at the time and was going to Monaco, um, or, or he would have been at the end of the season. So he said, look, I'm going to Monaco. I want you to sign, go down. So I flew down. Um, that's 
unbeknownst to the, the club. I went to London and then on to Nice. And then I travelled, looked at apartments. I signed a five-year contract at Monaco, um, looked at apartments, picked apartment, da-da-da. Um, Wenger then went back to Nancy and said, look, I've got this clause in my contract, but I'm pretty sure I'll get out of it. Um, but the clause in my contract at Monaco meant that if he didn't come, it was null and void. So <laughs> the week passes and then he calls me to say that the French Federation have blocked it so that it's null and void. And at that point, obviously, I wasn't I wasn't going anywhere. And then I had contact with St. Etienne and met. And again, I met both of them very quickly. Um, and like the feel of Metz, uh, the coach at Metz. Um, and Metz was on the German border and I could... Because of my wife being half German, I could get away a little bit with some German, which he, the coach spoke to me and gave me information in German first before I learned French. Um, so that's what kind of took me there. I, I mean, I didn't grow up um, dreaming of playing for Mets, I've got to be honest, <laughs> and didn't really know where it was and where it was situated geographically in France. But um, I spent five years there and, and loved it. Um, and the culture was, again, totally different. It was a completely different start for me in, in every department. Um, language, food, communications, obviously, um, tactics, type of club I was playing with. Mets were not one of the top three or four teams. Um, we did go on to win a couple of trophies, but um, they weren't. So the, it was a different tactical approach. It was totally different to what I was experienced at Aberdeen. And, and I had to learn very quickly. Um, but I loved it. I really I loved it. And I immersed myself in the language. And I, I thought that was the way to allow me to communicate with the players and the coaches and whoever else. So I made a massive effort to do that. And I, I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. Both my children were born there. Um, and I had a wonderful time. And it that helped me experience. going forward, rather. Sorry. You know. Yeah, I was just going to say, did, did that experience of going abroad and, you know, having to adapt to a new culture and a new style of football as well, um, you know, is that something that was quite a big influence on you when when it came to the time that, you know, you went down your own sort of coaching path in the game? Yeah, without doubt. I mean, I, I wasn't going to be a coach. To be honest. Well, could be, no, I'm not saying I was a coach, but um, I, was, I had no intention of going into coaching. Um, and I went back to the Highlands with my wife, um, built a house and was going to get involved in some stuff there. And it was Craig Brown who really gave me the gave me the confidence and the opportunities to, to become a coach. And uh, I started working in the Highlands and the development side. And then he invited me to Park Gardens to be assistant to technical director at Park Gardens, the old SFA headquarters. Um, uh, and it was through that that I got into coaching, really. Um, so I'm, Craig Brown's the one that I thank him enormously, who's given me a um, get, for having given me rather the the opportunity and the confidence to go into coaching. Just for the listeners that don't know, it must be said that going back to your time at Mets, you also scored a goal in the French Cup for the Coupe de France final, um, continuing that um, mm-hmm. sparkling record in the domestic finals. <laughs> um, just just in the end of your playing career. Eric, we've touched already on the back problems, but how to retire at 27, the back problems must have been pretty intolerable, would be my understanding of it. And obviously, there's a parallel there with what ended up happening to Frank McDougall as well. He retired for the same reason, I believe, pretty early, maybe at the same age, 27. Yeah. How how difficult was it to not only play football, but to kind of get on with your, your day-to-day life? Well, it's, it's a massive turnaround. I mean, I, I was 
probably about a year or year and a half, maybe more. I mean, I, when I went to Mets, I was still carrying injuries from Aberdeen and I had to be operated. I was, I think I was top scorer in December with 10 goals in the French League. It was my first season there. Um, and at that point, the French League was a, it wasn't like going to the French League now. The, the French League was probably the best league in the world outside Italy, I would imagine. All the top players, French, the French national team had just won 86 um, Euros, Euros, I think, or whatever. But there was a massive amount of money in France at the time and players were coming from all over. Um, so I think just outside Italy, it had been the most competitive. So it, it was a great league to play in. It, was, it really was. It was a fan, fantastic experience. But I had been carrying back problems and a little bit, and I, as I said, sorry, I'm digressing here, but the, I then had to be operated on in the January um, for a hernia, which again had stemmed from my back and me putting more pressure on my, my muscles in the front to try and sustain and hold my back. Um, and then the, the year after, I had a back operation. So ultimately, I didn't play long spells of games. I, my first two seasons were probably the times that I played. And then after that, I was plagued by injury. So there was, in my head, there was probably, not not that I thought I was going to have to stop, but I'd been used to going in and out and in and out, which wasn't great because it's the, the loneliness of a long-distance runner at that point. You're, you're training with one coach, you know, you're doing physical work, you're playing for two games and then you're injured again. So... I'd gone into that, and that probably kind of prepared me a little bit um, that I would have to stop at some point. And I, I was everywhere. I went to Munich, I went to America, I went to Switzerland, everywhere, and it, they couldn't find they couldn't find a solution. So ultimately, it became increasingly difficult. And then when I did stop, it, without doubt, it's a it's a hard thing because you're it's psychologically more than physically. Physically, initially, because your body's used to working. And, you obviously stop that, but um, it's the psychological thing of being part of a group and having a reason. You know, you you all of a sudden find yourself in a position where you, what do I do next? Um, you know, there's uh, I went back to Allness in the Highlands, and there's not an awful lot of employment opportunities for somebody that's an ex-footballer. So it's um, it's not straightforward, but you have to deal with these things. And I've, I've gone through various things with these. Um, you stop playing, you, you get sacked as a coach. You get, all these things are there to test you. And you you respond or you don't. How I wasn't going to ask this question until you you said what you just said. But going back to Allness, before you know that coaching is going to be the next step for you, how how difficult is it being twenty seven year old Eric Black, who's such a well known face in such a kind of small provincial place? I suppose was it was it constant reminders that you were this football player who unfortunately had had the career taken away from you? I suppose a little bit. Was it was it difficult? Yeah, um, no. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd known obviously a lot of people there before I left, so um, it wasn't. It was it was difficult in terms of that. I obviously had to come and make a life for myself, and I had two young kids and a wife, and I wanted to make a life. So it, it wasn't straightforward in that degree. But no, I mean, I I was quite happy to to come back in and. Um, just getting involved, I had to get my mind on something, and that's when I started building a house. And not that I was building much of it, but I was certainly running around a lot. Um, so it, that really kept the focus for six, eight months, and then obviously you have to try and make decisions in your life. Um, I then got involved at Ross County. I was helping them for a bit, and then Craig gave me the opportunity to to work um, as a coach or a development coach for the the Highlands, which 
I can assure you, sets you up for anything. I was arriving in Sky at half past eight in the morning with nine kids from the age of sort of five to 14, and I had to take them for football for an hour. So it's um, a differentiation there is, is enormous. So it's, all these things were, were just part of what it was, and I was trying to progress and then ultimately given the opportunity to go to SFA, I suppose was the, uh, to the SFA rather was possibly the bigger turning point. Um, but then to go into professional coaching is a big step as well because, as we know, it's uh, the the chance to be removed from your post is higher and higher every every step you go up the ladder. I hope you included basketball in the curriculum for those kids in the sky. <laughs> that That's right, yeah, yeah, bit easier, yeah, when there's one that's fourteen who's five foot nine and thinks he's Maradona, and there's a five year old <laughs> who's never seen a football. Um, <laughs> Obviously, we won't um, we won't go through your whole coaching career in detail. Um, stints at Celtic under uh, John Barnes' assistant there. You were a Motherwell manager. You were at Coventry after that. You've also served as caretaker boss at places like and as a coach at places like Birmingham City, Sunderland, Blackburn, Blackpool, Wigan, Rotherham, Southampton. List goes yeah, on. Keep going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just to just to touch on two things that are most relevant to this podcast, I suppose. What was it like first of all when you were at Motherwell? We're obviously struggling a little bit at the time, but I think you did beat the Dons. The Dons beat you also. What was it like playing against your old team? Well, it was always strange. I must admit, as a manager, the first time was coming out at well, not first time as a uh, with Motherwell, but coming out at Petrodi was really bizarre. It was a I really felt it extremely strange. I would openly admit that, having spent so many years there and so many fruitful years, um, and really been formed as an individual, I would suggest. Um, as a football player, but you take that into your coaching, without doubt. Um, so it was, I would have to say, it was really bizarre walking out that tunnel um, and standing at the opposition dugout, um, which I did again, obviously, with Celtic. I'd done with Celtic, but it was a really bizarre feeling, really strange feeling. What was the, um, the Motherwell spell was obviously a, a difficult one with the, the way that the, you know, the, the season ended, um, the club went into administration and, um, you know, that was obviously a difficult spell that a lot of clubs in Scotland went through at the time. But you know there was so much quality in the the league at that that time. Um, you know what was your kind of recollections of the the Scottish game at that particular time? Well, it was still very competitive. I mean, I I, I went into Motherwell um, on the back of obviously they were struggling. I think it was with St Johnson because Big Billy Stark was manager at St Johnson at the time, and I think we're both. When I went in, he was bottom and I was second bottom. Um, so the first thought was to try and get away from relegation. And that was all that was in my head, was to try and get the club away um, from relegation and try and introduce one or two things that I thought would, would help the club going forward. Um, but ultimately, um, John Boyle, the, the, the chairman at the time, uh, put the club in administration for, obviously, for whatever financial reasons he felt. Um, and I felt at that point that I had, I'd spoken to so many players about and new contracts and various bits and pieces and had lined up bits and pieces for other players potentially to come in. And I felt a little bit let down on that point. I mean, again, I'm, he was the one that was putting in the money and he had every right to, to make the right decision or the decision that he felt was right. But it came out of the blue a little bit. And at that point, I decided to to cancel my contract and walk away. Um, I, Pat Nevin, who was chief executive at the time, did as well. Um, and fortunately, on the back of that, I had a call from Gary McAllister, who had just stopped playing and was taking over at Coventry and wanted somebody who had managed and coached 
to do the day-to-day and obviously um, during the game because he was on the pitch, which was a slightly different situation. So that gave me an opportunity to get into English football. I hate to do this, but obviously we mentioned the Celtic, the Celtic stint under John Barnes. Relevant for us as a podcast also covers Cali Thistle is of course the the famous Super Cali game in two thousand. What's how how difficult was that from from your perspective at the time? Very difficult. Um, I mean, you, when you go into a football club, you're fully immersed in wanting that football club to win and everything that you can do within your power to win. But um, there was bits and pieces happening that I felt were pretty negative, I must admit, round about it. Um, and we'd gone on, I think, the first... I mean, I think we came up to Petodrin won seven or eight, didn't we? I think in an earlier game. Um, so I think John's one rate at that point was relatively good. Um, but I think the, the game had been stopped due to high winds um, and a problem with the roofing. Um, and we'd lost then, in this, I think, to Hearts. And then on the back of that defeat, the rearranged game against Cali Thistle, um, having lost the game at that point, which we sh- should never have lost, and great credit to Cali. They, they deserve to win it on the night, but there was um, so much turbulence going on um, internally, I think. Um, but it wasn't a great, it was a great experience in terms of going through something, crisis management to a certain degree. Um, but it very quickly it all came ahead very quickly after that and uh, John was removed and I was I was asked if I wanted to go back as academy director, which I didn't want to do at that point because I obviously had worked in the first team for the last couple of years and I didn't want to go back down into that. Um, so I, I then cancelled my contract and left. Um, but not a nice experience, but certainly one that's been, uh, I'm happy to say it was Inverness Cali anyway, at least. <laughs> Ross County the, would have been better, I suppose. <laughs> the, um, thank God you said that. The, um, <laughs> the the final thing I'm going to ask you about about the, the actual guts of your coaching career is something I've asked you about before, but just for the people listening that don't know, you actually worked with current Aberdeen player Sam Cosgrove, didn't you, at one point? I did. I did, yeah. I worked with Sam at um, Blackburn. Um, and enjoyed it very much. I had, it was a, again, it was a difficult time at Blackburn. Very difficult time. There'd been a change of management, a change of ownership. There was uh, it was mayhem again ensuing round about it. But I do remember Big Sam, who trained with us quite a few times, um, as an extremely willing individual. Great physique, great size, fantastic temperament to be a football player. Um, uh, Again, again, a real desire to improve and be a football player, and I think that's going on. He's going on to show that it's maybe taking time for him, um, but he's now certainly developed into a real quality striker, um, and hopefully he can continue to do that with Aberdeen rather than somewhere else. <laughs> Another parallel almost unfolded, of course. He got the offer from the French. Yeah, was it top flight or second division from Wingamp? But he he's was all, it he Gangon? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah and re- rejected that move, which is which is a shame. You could have followed the Eric Black model there. But, um, <laughs> I will. I don't know. I don't know if I'd recommend uh, following anything that I did. But um, he's um, oh, he, he's capable without doubt of playing in that league, and he's he's shown he's certainly capable of playing at a higher level, a high level. So um, as I said, that uh, he may well ultimately go on to play again in England but 
the longer he's with Aberdeen, then the better for all concerned. Right. Final question. I promise. Obviously, you're out of coaching now. I read, read somewhere that part of that was that the role of assistant manager, which you'd traditionally done, was becoming diluted. Coaching departments were becoming bloated with a lot more people in them. There was less responsibility. You felt less part of it. Um, is that correct? Firstly, yeah, would that be a fair assessment. Yeah, I think yeah, that was part of it without doubt. Um, I had always been used to being the right hand man to the president or the president in a couple of um, situations, and I I just felt that I was. I wasn't really involved as much. I was on the training field, but I was just watching. I was then spending hours analysing games and things. And uh, It maybe sounds a, a little bit arrogant. I mean, I was at Southampton. It was an exceptionally good club and whatever else, but I just didn't feel part of it. And I, I, I remember the, the day I stopped, and I, I've got to admit my health wasn't great either. Uh, there was various things with that, with my back and bits and pieces. So... Uh, I, and I was living away six nights a week, um, which again I had done for the, the previous 16, 15, 16 years. Um, and all that was just getting a little bit worthless, really, you know. Um, and I just felt that it was maybe time to make, to make a change. Um, and I did, and I remember, that, I remember doing it at Man City. We, we lost in 96th minute to Man City, 2-1. Um, it was 1-1 right up until 96 minutes and they scored. And I remember going back into the dressing room and I didn't have that feeling. I didn't have the... The boys were in despair, obviously, having worked exceptionally hard to to keep Man City to 1-1 and then lose it with six minutes to go. But I was looking for a chicken sandwich to try and get myself down the road. And that was more important. But I just thought, this, this is not for me any longer. And I, I just didn't have the, the kind of... What do you call it? It's like the washing machine every time. You know, the tumble dryer, rather. Every mm-hmm. time you, you stood on the side of the pitch, I didn't have it anymore. Um, and I, I decided it was time. And I think it was a good decision, certainly for my health and coming back to live with my family, if you like, for yeah. more than one night a week. Um, so I have no regrets whatsoever. It was the right decision. And I, I can now see football from the outside, which I never could. I was constantly inside in the hamster wheel and I, I was, you know, it was the most important thing in my life. Um, and it's been very good to me, but I see it now slightly differently, uh, being outside it and looking in. Um, and it's it's definitely been the right decision. And what are you what are you doing with yourself now then? Are you still working? Well, or? yeah, uh, my son's a cabinet maker. He's got his own business. So I'm now the oldest apprentice in the world. Um, I'm, <laughs> well, probably Europe. I don't know about the world, but certainly Europe. Uh, yeah, I've been doing that now for nearly three years. So um, I work with him on a day-to-day basis, really, four days, sometimes four days a week. Um, I can play a game of golf once a week. Um, I deal with the clients. I do a lot of design. I've learned to do CAD. So I do all that. Um, so I'm, I'm now involved in the family a little bit more. I'm in involved in a different life and I'm, I'm enjoying it enormously is that in the contract the, the game of golf is he is he strict <laughs> yes, on the that, one game got, yeah I've, I've got to get the gaffer's approval that I can go for a game of golf um, but no I, I play once a week just to give me a walk and it's um, a long walk when you see me playing golf um, but it's um, no it's, it's a totally different thing a lot of people who are in football would certainly not understand it and if somebody had done it when I was in football I would have thought what on earth is he doing? Because it's it's your it's the be all and end all for a a football player is to be involved in football and do what you love. And but I'd lost that little bit, and it it just it did just didn't feel right any longer. Um, and again, that sounds a bit whatever, but um, 
I'm glad I made the decision, and I've uh, I'm enjoying it enormously. You certainly done your time anyway, but and you've yeah, done your time here today absolutely. as well. Thank you, much appreciated, <laughs> Eric, for joining us. A today. pleasure, not a pleasure, gentlemen. All the very best. Thanks very much. Eric. Look forward yeah. to a few more good results. Cheers. Um, I'll thank you, Andy, as well. Before I say say the the, the outro part of this. Ah, pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Thanks very much. Appreciate you Bro. just as much as Eric, Andy. Anyway, <laughs> that that okay. concludes this episode of Northern Goal. Thank you for listening. If you found the time to do so, if you've enjoyed it, you can like and subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also email us at northerngoal at dctmedia.co.uk. Finally, enjoy the football, whatever you're watching this weekend. We'll see you later. Hope you loved the episode. And if you did, we'd be grateful if you could leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your copies of the Press and Journal and Evening Express every day for the best football writing and analysis in the North.